Once again, good morning. Good to see you all. Could you please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And for the sake of the new folks, we again welcome you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And in our study of John's Gospel, we have entered into chapter 6, which contains the first of seven I Am statements by Jesus. As we have already said, John's Gospel is highly organized. He built it around seven miracles that led to seven discourses culminating in seven I Am statements. Now, the phrase I Am is the name of God, of course, uh, first expressed in Exodus chapter 3, when God said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses said, well, Lord, who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? I don't even know your name. And then the Lord said to Moses, you tell them I Am. Tell Pharaoh I Am is sending you. Uh, it's the letters Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew, and um, it's actually a verb. Uh, it means to be or to become, the idea being that God wants to be or to become to us whatever we need, which is why the word Jehovah, I Am, uh, probably pronounced Yahweh, but we Gentile Christians pronounce it Jehovah, Jehovah for most of the time, but uh, which is why the word Jehovah, I Am, is often coupled with a noun. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read uh, numerous of these uh, combinations, but uh, to give you a few, Jehovah Shalom, I am peace. Jehovah Jireh, I am provision. Jehovah Nissi, I am victory. Jehovah Rohi, I am shepherd. I want to become these things to, to you. Of course, the greatest of all is Jehovah Shua, which means I am salvation. The Greek name Jesus actually comes from the Hebrew Yehoshua, uh, or Yeshua for short, which means that uh, God has become our salvation. The greatest need we had was for salvation. God wants to become to us whatever we need. Well, the greatest need we had was for salvation. So God the Son, second person of the Trinity, came down from heaven, became a man, and died in our place in the person of Jesus, our Yeshua, the Lord has become our salvation. Now, in John's gospel, Jesus called himself I Am, now that's the name of God, coupled with seven different nouns expressing what he desires to become to all people. Uh, of course, starting with his very name, which uh, I Am Salvation, okay, that's the where it all starts, but uh, we see seven of these in John's gospel. He builds his gospel around these seven I Am statements. The first one is in John 6, I am the bread of life, then I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and then John 15, I am the vine. Now guys, as we've already said, each of these is a declaration of divinity. And so as we study John 6, understand that the whole chapter is built around the miracle. Remember, a miracle leading to a discourse culminating in an I am statement. That's John's format. That's his model. John 6 is built around the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, that would be 5,000 men plus women and children, upwards of 20,000 people. And so the miracle got people's attention. Uh, the crowd formed. And um, that led to a very important discourse that Jesus gives here, culminating and climaxing with his declaration of divinity, I am the bread of life. I've divided verses 22 through 71 of John 6 this way. The physical preoccupation of the multitudes, the divine declaration of the Savior, the carnal condemnation of the Jewish leaders, and the strategic separation. You'll understand what I mean by this when we get to the end of the chapter. The strategic separation of the true disciples from the false. So last week we began the first one. Didn't get very far because we kind of got off into a side issue that really is, was important. But the first one, starting in verse 22, the physical preoccupation of the multitudes. And guys, by saying this, I mean that this great multitude of people, again, upwards of 20,000, were more interested in their physical stomachs than they were in their eternal souls. Now, that's a problem, and it's quite a common problem for many uh, in our culture. 
uh, so fixated on the physical to the complete neglect of the spiritual. Now, we know that this is where they were coming from, that they were more carnally minded than spiritually minded because of how Jesus addresses their desire to be near him. Verse 26, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The Lord is going to use this interactive sermon in John 6. I say interactive because questions and answers. All right. He's going to use this interactive sermon to try to elevate their thinking and their perception of life from the physical, which is not unimportant, but not all-consuming, from the physical to the spiritual. You'll see what I mean as we go. So verse 22, on the following day, when the, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his, his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread, where the Lord multiplied the loaves, where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now let me just explain what was going on, all right? They were in the, the area of Bethsaida, which is on the northeastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And there Jesus fed the 5,000. You remember that verse 15 tells us the people were so enamored with the fact that, you know, he had multiplied this great amount of food with just a small fragments. They wanted to take him by force and make him their king. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew, uh, Mark says, immediately he compelled them to get into the boat and go across to the Sea of Galilee and land on the northwestern shores at Capernaum where they had come from before they came to Bethsaida. So the people saw the disciples get into the boat and launch out into the uh, Sea of Galilee, but Jesus was not with them. He went up on top of a mount to pray, remember? Well, you remember how the storm hit. And the disciples are out there battling for their lives, they thought, and his waves were tremendous, and Jesus is watching the whole thing happen from the mountaintop. And at one point he comes and he walks across the lake, and he comes and he sets foot in the boat, and immediately it was at the other side, right? That's how he got there. They didn't know that. They went to sleep. They were glutted, it says, uh, stuffed themselves with the feeding of the 5,000, the bread and fish. And so they camped out. They just fell asleep on the, in the field there and camped out a little bit and didn't see Jesus come down from the mountain, walk in the sea, and the disciples uh, you know, met them there, and, and they wound up in, in, in Capernaum. Well, the crowd wakes up, and, they, and they're looking for Jesus. They don't find him. They, uh, they assume, well, he must have somehow joined his disciples, the boats over there, over there by Capernaum. They could see across the lake. It wasn't that far from the northern end. So, well, he must be over there, too. So that's when it says in verse 24, they got into boats and they went to Capernaum, listen, seeking Jesus. Seeking Jesus. Guys, the whole issue that Jesus is going to be addressing in this chapter is those who seek him and even follow him, but for the wrong reasons, for selfish reasons. And realize he's not talking here to unbelievers in the classic sense. On the contrary, these are people who were seeking Jesus. They had a religious mindset. They had a desire to follow him. But as I said, their motives were all wrong. In that regard, guys, theirs was a much more subtle and deceptive kind of unbelief. It was not, you know, it, the kind that's not really atheistic in nature. Because these people did believe in Jesus and even desired to follow him. But uh, purely for what he could give them what they were expecting him to do for them. That kind of, again, very selfish, self-focused uh, approach to following Jesus. We see it today a lot, too. There's a lot of folks who follow Christ because they've been promised to have the biggest house in town, the best car, uh, business that prospers, uh, hundredfold returns on whatever they give God. Um, this is something that's very prevalent in our, our, our culture and, and some Christian circles. But beware of this kind of unbelief that gives the illusion of faith and wraps itself in a veneer of religion, but in reality is the most deceptive kind of unbelief. It's the most deceptive because there is nothing more deceptive, there's no greater deception than self-deception. 
There's a lot of folks who have a form of godliness, and um, they have a form of godliness, and uh, maybe even go to church and do some good works um, in their church's name, but uh, they have not made a commitment to Christ. And so Jesus is going to be addressing these, and as we pointed out last time in our study in John's Gospel, these folks were carnally minded, carnally minded, which the Bible says leads to death. Romans 8, verse 6, Paul said to be carnally minded is, uh, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so guys, as he did throughout his ministry, Jesus is here attempting to shift the thinking of people away from the carnal to the spiritual. Now, the physical is important, and that's what, you know, look, the Lord Jesus Christ would often meet physical needs, heal the sick, feed the hungry. Because people are not going to really want to hear how God, much God loves them when they have these needs. So Jesus met their physical needs, but then used the opportunity to preach to them about their real needs, which were not physical, important as those are, but the physical only lasts for life on this earth. The spiritual lasts for eternity. And that's why he then tried to elevate their thinking through an earthly miracle and feeding their bodies and so on, so that they would be open to hear about their truest need, which was spiritual. So verse 25, And when they found him on the other side, so they all, they all went to the Capernaum region and saw Jesus and his disciples now on that side of the Sea of Galilee, Lake of Galilee. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Um, that question is the first of three that the multitudes asked Jesus that day, which served to launch the important discourse he delivered in chapter 6. Those three questions are as follows. Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 25. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Verse 28. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? That's actually one question, not two. Verse 30. So let's. we started looking at the first one last time. Uh, I'm sorry, no, we did not. Uh, but I want to look at it right now. Uh, or come back next week. We'll just, no. Uh, <laughs> verse 25. Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, let me paraphrase what I believe they're actually saying. I could be wrong. Okay? I could be wrong. I kind of... I kind of sense a mild rebuke, a mild rebuke in what they were asking. Let me paraphrase what I, I think. It goes some, in my mind, it goes something like this. Uh, why did you leave without telling us? When did you get here and why didn't you take us with you? You fed us with bread yesterday evening, but when we were hungry for breakfast, you were nowhere to be found. That's no way to act, seeing as we put our faith in you to be our welfare state see that in essence guys what was what i believe was their thinking i believe that was behind the question so verse 26 jesus answered them and said most assuredly i say to you you seek me not because you saw the signs but because you ate of the loaves and were filled now as we have already said in previous studies in john's gospel whenever jesus said most assuredly i say to you that's how the new king james puts it I don't know how you're translated. I think the King James is verily, verily, okay? Uh, but whenever Jesus um, said, most assuredly, I say to you, that meant what I'm about to say is vitally important, so listen carefully. That was the, 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 the intent. What I'm about to tell you, most assuredly, I say to you, what I'm about to tell you is extremely important. Please don't miss it is the idea. Now, four times in this discourse, Jesus emphasizes the importance of what he is saying with the words, most assuredly, I say to you. In verses 26, 32, 47, and verse 53. Four times he stresses how important it was for them to listen because what he had to say was vitally important. And what was the subject? Eight times he refers to eternal life. That's interesting because eight in the, in the Bible is the number of new beginnings. The ultimate new beginning is to become a new creation in Christ, right? 
The ultimate new beginning is to receive Christ and be in a brand new born again creation in Christ. Folks, there is nothing more important than eternal life. Not your stomachs, not your house, not the clothes you wear. Those are important, but not all important. And Jesus knew that, of course. And so he wants to stress to them, using the miracle of feeding their stomachs with physical bread to elevate their thinking and perception of life to, to understand that, look, it, it, satisfying physical hunger is important. I made your body to crave food when it gets hungry. But what you really are craving in your soul, which whether you know it or not, is a relationship with me, eternal life. That's all important. I want you to notice, though, that Jesus... You know, Lord, when did you come here? I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't even answer the question, does he? It was irrelevant. You see, God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. God is not our servant. We are his servants. So Jesus doesn't answer their question, but instead gets right to the issue that was on their mind. All they were thinking about was free food. Free food, you know. Hey, last night was great. We were glutted. And remember now, in a culture, not like America, okay, in that culture, people seldom went to bed with full stomachs. They were poor most of the time. And if they had a little bit to eat throughout the day, they were, they were happy, but never really satisfied. The Greek says of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they were all glutted. I mean, they were you know, like a big Thanksgiving meal. And so no wonder they fell asleep on the ground after they stuffed themselves. They were tired. But they woke up hungry, right? And I'm sure they were thinking something along the lines, hey, what's Jesus got cooking for us today? Boy, last night was great. I'm hungry. What, what's he got going for breakfast? Bacon and eggs? All you can eat pancakes? I mean, what, what's he got in store for us today, right? Where is he? Couldn't find him. Ran over to the, or got in boats, some ran around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, found Jesus. He said, look, you don't, you're not seeking me for the right reasons. And it's great you're seeking me. We got to do it for the right reasons, right motives. You're only seeking me because you ate of the loaves yesterday and were filled. The word filled is actually a Greek word that was used for animals that had been foddered up. In other words, Jesus likens them to animals that had been stuffed full of hay the day before. We're now back for another load. Now, the Bible does liken the natural unsaved person to an animal because like an animal, he or she is only concerned with their bodily needs and appetites. You know, food, clothing, pleasure, which none of that is wrong or, or evil in and of themselves. I mean, God made our bodies to crave food and we get hungry. Uh, you know, that, that's important. Uh, or thirsty, we need drink. Um, we need clothes and, and sexual pleasure in the context of marriage is beautiful and legitimate. The problem with these things is that God has designed us to need these things for the sustaining of the physical body, but he never wanted us to worship those things. He never wanted us to, that was the, the focus of our lives, just satisfying our bodily appetites, you know? That animals live for food, drink, procreation, that kind of thing. We were never made to be animals. We were made in the image of God. Of course, that part of us that connected us to God, our spirit died in the Garden of Eden. And so every person born of, uh, in the human race after Adam and Eve sinned was born with as a two-dimensional creature, body and a consciousness, which is the same as the animal kingdom. It's the spirit in man that allows us to connect with God, worship God, commune with him. And the spirit can never be, cannot, cannot come alive again until you give your heart to Christ and are born again. That's what it means. The, your spirit is born again. And now you can connect with God. Because uh, God connects with his spirit to spirit. But um, it's important that we understand this. That um, we, people, people, uh, Americans, we, we're obsessed with our bodies. Okay? I'm you know, just talking generically, generally. Um, in fact, did you notice that around the holidays, when we all eat more than we should, all the commercials were about food? As soon as January 1st hit, everything changed on TV. All the commercials were now about joining a gym or signing up for some kind of a diet program. 
okay. I mean, look, this simply in my mind reflects our preoccupation and often our obsession with the physical to the neglect of the spiritual, knowing, loving, and serving God. Now, Jesus points this out. I mean, Jesus knew their hearts. He points this out when he said, You seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The signs he spoke of were a reference to his miracles that he had been going around doing. In fact, verse 2 tells us they followed him because of the miracles. Okay? And um, he called these signs, these miracles. Why did he call them signs? Well... A sign points to something, right? A sign has no inherent value in and of itself. Its only value is in what it points you to, right? You're looking for a place, and you see a sign that tells you, look, go left or right, uh, and it's three miles down the road. That's important, right? Because let's be honest, a sign often points to something important. Well, look, the miracles that Jesus went around doing were signs that pointed to him as the Messiah. Read Isaiah 35. And there's other places where God said, you will know my Messiah, the one I will send you, because he will cause the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. Everything Jesus was doing, right? These were all miracles he was doing because he wanted these miracles to act as signs, to point people to him as Messiah. Now, some got it. Some got it. Others did not. Why? Because they were too fixated on their physical needs to see the spiritual significance in the miracles Jesus was doing. But, but some did get it. I mean, verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. What prophet? Well, the one that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. How that someday God was going to send a prophet, capital P, all right, uh, who would be a deliverer like me. Although where Moses delivered people from the bondage of Egypt, God would use this prophet to deliver us all from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus Christ, right? Now some at least, I'm not saying everybody, uh, especially in this group that we're reading about, I'm not sure everyone, um, in fact I'm positive that they all didn't understand Jesus was the Savior and God incarnate. At very least, they all recognized him as a great prophet. Certainly a miracle worker, which is why they were following him, right? Now, I want you to understand, I want to clear up a couple of misconceptions about what Jesus said here, okay? First of all, understand when Jesus said, don't labor for food which perishes, he wasn't saying, don't work to buy food, just sponge off of others. That's not what he was saying. I don't know who would believe that. Some might, okay? But rather he was saying... Don't let your life be consumed with laboring for your physical needs when the greatest need that you have is spiritual, the need for everlasting life. And guys, in the Greek, it's emphatic. We could translate it this way. Make salvation the object of intense desire, the true obsession of your life. Nothing's more important. One author said, and I quote, Satisfying one's physical appetite is not the most important thing in life. Man consists not only of body, but of spirit and soul as well. Man should not live as if his body were all. He should not devote all his strength and talents to, feeding, to the feeding of his body, which in a few short years will be eaten by worms. Rather, he should make sure that his soul is fed day by day with the word of God. Quoting Matthew 4, verse 4, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He goes on, We should work tirelessly to acquire a better knowledge of the word of God. When the Lord Jesus said that God the Father has set his seal on him, he meant that God had sent him, Jesus Christ, and approved him. When we set our seal to something, it means that we promise that it is true. God sealed the Son of Man in the sense that he endorsed him as one who spoke the truth, end quote. Yes, because he was a man who came down from God, um, born a, a human being and so on, to give us truth. So that's the first misconception I want to clear up. Jesus is not saying when he said don't work for the food that perishes. He's not saying don't work uh, and buy food, just, you know, 
ask others to feed you. No, that's not what he was saying. Furthermore, we, we must be careful to, uh, that we, uh, excuse me, uh, we must be careful that we don't also make the mistake of interpreting what Jesus is saying here this way. Don't, do not labor for the physical food which perishes, but instead labor, or in other words, work hard for everlasting life. That would also be a misinterpretation. Why? Because we know the Bible clearly teaches that eternal life is a free gift to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and asks God for it by faith. Something that Jesus went on to imply in verse 27 when he said, This eternal life, the Son of Man will what? Give you. Give you. However, guys, the crowd seems to have interpreted what Jesus said is a command to work hard so as to earn eternal life, which caused them to ask the second question they asked Jesus that day, verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? It shouldn't surprise us that these people, steeped in a legalistic religious system known as Judaism, would think that they needed to work for God's approval and to earn his blessings, especially the blessing of eternal life. That shouldn't surprise us. Why? Well, because all religions, all religions are based on what man does for God. All religions are based, man-made religions are based on what man does for God. In that regard, religion says D-O, do. The word religion comes from a Latin word which means to bind in the sense of binding someone to an obligation. The dictionary defines obligation as duty, which in turn it is defined as a thing which a person ought to do, a thing which is right to do. Therefore, religion is an obligation or duty to do certain right things. And uh, what are those right things? It depends on the group. Every religious movement has their own set of right and wrong. You know, it has their own little list of things that are right things to do to earn salvation, right? And so religion places this obligation or duty on people to do the right things because in doing those right things, and again defined by their, their group or church, well, they can then earn a place in heaven. And um, let me just say this. Um, there are really only two religions, quote-unquote, two religions in the world. The religion, of human, the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. Every religion and religious system in the world, apart from Christianity, falls into the category of human achievement. This system believes that what a person does for God will earn them his favor, merit his blessings, and ultimately get them into heaven if their group or church believes in heaven. Only Christianity, which is not a religion, but a relationship. So let me just, you know, a lot of folks call Christianity a religion. Well, they're not really plugged into what the Bible says about Christianity. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. I've said it many times. God does not want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. That's what Christianity is, right? But Christianity is the only thing in the world, only religious system, if I can put it that way, that falls under the category of divine accomplishment, what God has done for us. Religion says do, Christianity says done, as in it is what? Finished. John, what, 19 verse 30? Jesus said that from the cross. Look, religion comes from man and is an expression of his pride. He said, what do you mean by that? Religious zeal is an attempt and an effort made by people who want to prove how good they are, how worthy they are to work hard for and earn eternal life. Religion at its core is built on pride. I am a good person. I'm going to prove it by going to church every day, lighting the candles, praying the rosaries, helping in the local soup kitchen. I'm going to prove my worth to God, I'm going to show him I am worthy of heaven and I'm going to work hard to earn heaven. That's religion. 
It is man-centered and works-oriented. Christianity, on the other hand, comes from God and is Christ-centered and grace-oriented. Guys, grace means unmerited favor, undeserved blessing, receiving a gift from God that we didn't earn and don't deserve. And so these people, God love them, raised with a religious mindset all their lives, They came to Jesus and wanted to know what works they could do that would please God enough so that he would grant them everlasting life. And Jesus said in verse 29, he answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now, here I believe the Lord is being a little facetious in that he picks up their lingo and uses it to answer their question without ever intending to mean that faith was a work. Jesus made it clear that only one work, quote-unquote. Okay, Lord, what must we do to work the works of God and earn salvation? Do you want to get to heaven? You want to, you want to, want to be saved? Here's the work. Believe. Okay? Not saying that believing is a work, but he's kind of picking up on their, the way they're phrasing it, right? We've done that before. He made it clear there's only one work, quote-unquote, that was necessary for a person to be saved, to believe on the Savior. The bread that came down from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. When a person believes on Christ, he or she is not, listen, is not performing a good work that earns them salvation. Now, I say that because some Christian groups say that um, faith is a work. And therefore, since we can't work for salvation... You, don't even, you can't even have the faith to believe. God's got to give you that. Well, I don't really see that in my Bible. I don't see that in my Bible. And I don't see where faith is a work. Read, read Romans 4, verses 2 to 5. Paul said very clearly, it's either we get into heaven by our works or by our faith. He separates the two. And, of course, then it goes on to say it's not by works. It's by our faith in Christ. But salvation is a gift we receive by faith, not a reward we earn by our works. Turn to Ephesians 2. I'll read you. And then Titus 3. You can look for both of those. And these are two classic passages on this subject, but I could take you to many others. Salvation is a gift we receive by faith, not a reward we earn by our works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, let me read it to you out of the NLT 2nd edition. Paul said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. He goes on to say, verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. God didn't want people in heaven boasting about how worthy they were to be there. So he took it out of our hands. He said, look, none of you can get to heaven by your works. Because guess what? You're done before you even start. You were born with original sin in your soul. Handed down from Adam. Any sin in your soul will keep you out of heaven. And then we all add to that throughout the course of our lives. The Bible makes it very clear. To get into heaven, you have to be perfect, sinless. Well, that's ridiculous. Who could be sinless? Nobody's sinless. Christ was. And when you put your faith in him, the Bible says the Holy Spirit places you what? In Christ. God no longer sees you or me. He sees Jesus, who is perfect. That's the only way we can get to heaven. Titus 3, verse 5. Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, not our going to church and lighting candles and all these other things, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about being born again. Read John 3 again. How that when we put our faith in Christ, the Spirit comes inside and we are born again. We receive a new nature. We are uh, old things have passed away. All things have become new. We are new creations in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. We don't get saved by doing religious works. We get saved by putting our faith in Christ that the Spirit comes in and washes of our sins. 
We're renewed, made brand new. And so, guys, in the context of the bread of life discourse, where Jesus is talking about their need for eternal life, listen, no greater subject, right? No greater subject than to talk to somebody about eternal life. And while he's talking about eternal life to these people, in the context of that, at one point he comes against the enemy of receiving eternal life, legalism. Legalism. Let me say in closing that legalism is a serious problem for those outside the body of Christ because they think they got to keep working and working and working. And Paul said, if you try to earn salvation, you can't have it. It's a gift you receive. But you know what? The devil doesn't stop once a person gets saved because legalism is a serious problem in the body of Christ among Christians causing many to feel condemned in their walk with God. What exactly is legalism? Well, we've talked about it in this series, but this study, but um, it is simply the belief that I can become holy and please God by obeying laws. It is measuring spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. Again, it's the idea that God can be pleased, placated, um, and indebted to us by our good works, and religious observances, again, you know, going to church, lighting candles, praying the rosary, and letting my Catholicism uh, come through here, uh, helping in the local food pantry. A lot of folks believe that by doing these works, they're earning, they're, I don't know if I, I said it to you guys, like sometimes I forget what, what service I said this. I think I said this last service, I'll say it to you guys. There's a lot of groups, uh, Roman Catholics included, who are taught that all the good works you do, and I'm talking about going to church again, lighting the candles, praying the rosaries, helping out in the local food pantry, all that stuff, earns you little installments of grace. See, they define grace as works. And all the good things I do, I'm earning little installments of grace. And if I do enough good things, go to enough masses, go to a, light enough candles, pray enough rosaries, help enough people, I will earn enough, enough grace to purchase or earn my salvation. This is exactly opposite what the Bible teaches and is heresy. It's damning heresy. Heresy that will damn a person to hell if believed in. Now, now, let me say this. Many pastors teach that salvation is a free gift we receive by faith, but then hold on to by our works. And that's just as bad. In Galatians 3, Paul talks to the Galatians, which was a region in central Turkey made up of many churches. But after Paul had left the area, having preached the gospel of grace, people got saved, churches were started. After he left the area, here comes the Judaizers, which were Pharisees who claimed to be Christians, but were still very much into the law. They taught, and they went around telling people, look, Paul said, you get to have my just believing in Christ. No, no, no. You got to first be circumcised, you men. You got to keep the laws of Moses. Then you can believe on Jesus and go to heaven. Well, Paul vehemently came against that teaching. It really spawned the first church council in Acts 15. He said, foolish Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How were you saved? By working for it through religious works and things or by believing in Christ? Having begun in the Spirit, you were saved by the Spirit of God through faith. Are you not going to be made perfect in the flesh? In other words, so what people believe is, some groups, yeah, I'm saved by faith, but then I can only grow through works and holding on to it. My salvation is dependent on how well I hold on to it by continuing to do good things. Here's my list, my church you know, of do's and don'ts, where I can lose my salvation. Some churches, people get saved every week because every week they blow it. I don't believe that's biblical. I believe if you're saved, really saved, you're saved forever. One pastor said throughout church history, some Christian groups have fallen into the same kind of error. 
insisting that conformity to countless man-made regulations and ceremonies is necessary for true godliness, whether in the form of extreme ritualism or of strictly prescribed codes of conduct. In my pastoral experience, I have counseled many people who have suffered severe emotional and spiritual damage because they tried to live holy lives on the basis of some high standard. I have seen the consequences of these attempts. Either the person becomes a pretender, a Pharisee, or he suffers a complete collapse and abandons his desire for godly living, end quote. Or, or feel so condemned by their failure, uh, their failures on an ongoing basis, I feel so condemned by their failure to live up to their church's, you know, list of holy requirements to get into heaven or to please God, that they give up. No, nobody can live under the weight of legalism. Uh, either eventually they, pretend, they become Pharisees, or they just say, I can't do it. And they walk away from Christianity altogether, or, in some extreme cases, commit suicide. I was telling first service that years ago, I had a lady come to the church. And she had gone for years to one of these ultra-legalistic churches. And boy, did they have her messed up. Uh, she was so condemned. The poor thing was just so condemned. You can see it in her countenance. And so I spent a lot of time trying to show her from the scriptures that you don't get into heaven by your works, that God loves you unconditionally. Uh, God loved the people in our church who knew this lady, and they rallied around her, and they were encouraging her, and they were sharing scriptures with her. This went on for about a month or so. But she was so weighted down with condemnation, she just could not receive the, the, the message of God's grace. And she eventually left and went back to that church. About a month later, I got word that she had committed suicide. And her family, who knew of this church, despised that church because they blamed that church for her suicide, came to me and asked me if I would do her memorial service. And at that service, I basically told those folks, it's a shame when churches let the devil in to preach legalism, which brings condemnation, which oftentimes brings separation from God and even separation from life as people commit suicide. They can't live under the weight. Look, let me just say this in closing. Guys, God loves you freely and unconditionally. I don't know what the devil's hammering you with this morning. I, I've been talking to people, um, someone very close to me that I've had to talk off the ledge a couple times in the last couple weeks. I mean, not literally, but, you know, because of all his past failures and sins, he was convinced he's probably not even saved. Just really the devil hammering on him. And I kept trying to tell him that, look, God loves you unconditionally. regardless of your weaknesses and your failures and your faults, all of which, by the way, he knew before he ever created you. Right? The idea that, you know, when I blow it, God's surprised. Oh, my goodness, I never would have thought that of you. <laughs> Boy, you really let me down here, God's saying. That's what they hear. Look, God knew every sin I was ever going to commit before he even created me before he offered me eternal life, and he still offered it to me. I can't surprise God. I can grieve the heart of God. I can't surprise him. And all my sins are under the blood of Christ. Look, God is not, I know this, God is not the proverbial police officer staring at you. People think God's looking at me. Just, whoa, just waiting for me to mess up. Like, just the proverbial police officer, you know, staring at you to find proof of crimes committed so he can punish you. No. He is your loving Heavenly Father who only wants good for you. Let, let me close with a, a true story about a little boy named William. And uh, William is a pastor's son, and I happen to know this pastor. Okay? 
So I know it's a true story, but um, William was, is a pastor's son who at the time of this story was about seven years old. And it seems that William was a rambunctious little boy who often pushed the patience of his teachers, both at school and at church. So one Sunday, while this pastor and his family were driving home from church, uh, he noticed William was unusually quiet. You know, little boys like that, they like to talk, and they're always bouncing off the walls. They're just a rambunctious little guy. But he was uncharacteristically quiet. But suddenly, at one point, blurted out, Dad, is God watching me? William's father knew that something was behind that question. And so he asked, well, why do you ask me that, William? Did someone tell you God is watching you? William responded in kind of a sheepish tone. Well, my Sunday school teacher told me God is watching me. Is this true, Dad? Is God watching me? And, and of course, in William's mind, it, it was, is God watching me because he's angry with me? He's, he's not happy with me. He might want to punish me. That's the impression the Sunday school teacher gave little William. I don't care how rambunctious he was. You don't plant that in a kid's mind. My Sunday school teacher told me God was watching me. Is it true, Dad? Is God watching me? William's father probed a little deeper. Why did your Sunday school teacher tell you God is watching you, William? Well, because I was kind of acting up in class. But is it true, Dad? Is God really watching me? Now, this pastor was wise enough to realize that how he answered his son's question would have the ability to shape his concept of God for years to come. This was a pivotal moment, I believe, in young William's life. You get these moments once in a while, don't you? You probably experience them in your own life or with your kids. All of a sudden, a simple question turns into a life-changing moment, and you better be careful how you answer that question. So this pastor prayed a quick prayer, as we often do, asking for wisdom, and then he said this to his son. Yes, William, it's true. God is watching you. He's watching you because he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. And let me just say this. That is true for all of God's children. He is watching you. He's watching you not because he's angry with you or disappointed in you or disgusted when you fail. He's watching you because he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. And like any parent, he wants what's best for you and me and so he patiently keeps watching over us guiding us protecting us and so on and when you fall and believe me you're going to fall if any man says he has no sin he deceives himself the truth is not in him right you and i are going to fall oh, i don't want to fall well sure we don't want to fall but we're going to fall we're going to blow it right and when you fall remember this our Heavenly Father stands ready to pick you up, dust you off, take you in His arms, and whisper in your ears, I forgive you, child. Now draw your strength from me. Don't, don't try to live your Christian life in your strength. Draw near to me and draw strength from me, and I will teach you how to walk with me better in the future. The idea, I can do it, Lord. Just watch me. Okay. God says, well, like Peter, I won't deny you. Well, Peter fell pretty hard, didn't he? He had to fall if he was going to be used. No man or woman can be used by God greatly who has self-confidence in their heart. We have to be broken. And it's not until we're broken that, well, when we're weak, then we're strong. That's the heart of our Heavenly Father. And I hope you understand that as we enter into this new year. Because only relating to God through His love and His grace, and not through a system of laws, will bring you close to Him this year and give you a, a year of victory and blessing 
and closeness with God. I'm so thankful that all my sins have been taken care of by Jesus Christ. They're all under his blood. They've been taken out of the way. That frees me to relate to God openly through his grace. Ours is not a works righteousness system, which you work hard, you do the right things, and you are declared right with God. Ours is a system where God loves us regardless of how we... One day I might uh, read uh, 10 chapters in the Bible, pray for an hour, and witness to 15 people. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Next day, I don't do any of that stuff. Maybe I fall into an old sin. Now I'm feeling pretty condemned. That's the, that's the devil. Keep you on the legalistic roller coaster. Just relate to God by his grace. He loves you in spite of your faults and flaws and sins. And the more you know that, the more he'll never leave you and forsake you, the more it will free you to stop trying to earn his love and just accept it for what it is. And in so doing, you will see how that you will, because of God's grace, begin to walk with him more closely. The victory will come more freely, and you will have a year like no other year you probably had in your whole life if you relate to him by his, through his love and grace, not through a set of religious, legalistic laws. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, it's such a light to us, Lord. Uh, it frees us from the error of the devil, the lies of the devil. And Lord, we pray that you give us a renewed hunger for your word this year, a desire to spend time with you, Lord, because you love us. And we want to just draw close to you and, I don't know, jump up on the throne of grace and snuggle with you a little bit and just tell you how much we love you because you love us unconditionally. We just thank you, Lord. Father, make this year a blessed year of victory and fruitfulness, a year where we draw close to you as never before. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.